again, end of another week. Uh, we do have a quiz this week that is available now. Uh, quiz number two, which will cover uh, the last two chapters that we did, which would be chapters two and, two and three. Um, that will be available through the weekend and through Monday, and I'll remind you of it on Monday that you can complete that if you haven't. Homework three, I think everybody has now the correct copy. Uh, the homework should just be the five questions on the planets. That will be due on the 29th, the week from Monday. We'll be talking about the planets starting today, and then we'll be working on that part, a good part of next week as well. Uh, coming up after that, a second solar observation is due by the 1st of October. Again, if you've just made two by then, you're running behind. That's all that's required, but you're not keeping up with trying on pace to get 10 for the semester, which is what I'm looking for. So I do want to, to turn in a second one. Again, make sure you're keeping on track, thinking about it, and I'll take a look at them and give you any comments as to how things are going. And then another quiz coming up uh, beginning of October. We also have an exam coming up after that shortly and a few other assignments that will be, that will be coming up um, later. So, but the next few things are, are up there. Any questions on anything there? Yes, sir. With the solar observations, I've been trying to take them a couple times a day because it's hard to do it at the exact same time. But most of mine have consistently been 2.30. Is that too late? That's a little later. That would be good. I mean, if you can keep it within a half an hour to 45 minutes, which is 2 o'clock, it's better. If you've got a little bit later, keep them. When you start getting to 4 and 5 o'clock, then you're really. Okay. Sun's getting way too low. It's going to be real long. Even at 2, you're going to start to notice that the shadows are, I'll notice that the shadows are longer than they should be when I do the calculations. Don't throw them away. You've made the observation, so keep it. If you made one at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, oh, no, somebody, no, somebody, I'm just saying, if somebody did keep it, don't throw it away. But you might, you're going to want to, you're going to want to go as close to 115 as you can. Again, half an hour either way will work fine. The further you, further you get away from that, you know, the sun's up here. The further you get away, it's getting lower and lower. Shadows are going to get longer and longer. So it's going to throw them off. But keep what you've got. Don't, don't throw away anything you've got. Good. Anything else? Nope, nope, nope. All right. Well, picture of the day for today. Uh, appropriate for starting our section on the solar system. It's actually an image of four of the moons of the solar system. And these are four potentially habitable moons. What do we mean by potentially habitable? means that there are conditions there where life could possibly form. It doesn't mean that we could really go live on these moons. Uh, these three, these two are moons of Jupiter. They have no atmosphere at all. So you couldn't land on the surface and be able to breathe anything. There wouldn't be any kind of atmosphere there. Um, this small one of Saturn also has no atmosphere. These are two large moons of Jupiter. This one is a uh, moon of Saturn. And Titan is another large moon of Saturn. This is the one that actually does have an atmosphere. Atmosphere and composition very close to the Earth's. Lots of nitrogen, argon, um, missing oxygen. Still can't go and breathe, but in terms of the, the atmosphere, it's actually very similar to the Earth's, ignoring the fact that we have oxygen. It's a similar pressure, a little bit higher pressure than the Earth's, but about the same, about the same. And why these are all considered habitable is that they all have a liquid located somewhere on them. These three, Europa, Ganymede, and Salatus, actually have water not on the surface, but below the surface. So there is a great ocean on Europa. Europa is about the size of our own moon. So that's about the size of our moon too. These two are much bigger. But below this icy surface, 
hundreds of kilometers below that, there's a great ocean of liquid water that's been detected. Liquid water is one of the things that we believe is necessary for life to form. So could life form deep down below the surface of Europa? It's possible. Have we detected it yet? No. So in order to be able, we have nothing we've been able to find, find out about it. We don't have, we've had the technology to be able to detect that, but we don't have the ability to drill down, get down in there and sample and find out if any, you know, even basic single-celled organisms have been able to develop on Europa. Ganymede is similar, uh, maybe not as much water, it's a little further away from Jupiter than Europa, but it actually has water below its surface, again, lakes and seas down below its surface. Um, so these three are all very similar. Enceladus actually erupts water. It's like we erupt, have an eruption with molten rock. They have an eruption of waters, waters and ices and slush that would come out in the eruptions here. So we believe that there is liquid water down below the surface on all three of these. Do they have life? We don't know. But they are possibilities. They are possibilities. And some of the best possibilities we have in the solar system for life after probably Mars. Ignoring the Earth, where of course we know. We know there's life on Earth. But other than Mars, which is probably the next best possibility, these are three of the better, three of the better ones. And then the other one, a little bit different, is Titan. Titan is a large, the large moon of Saturn, one of the larger moons in the solar system. And it's the only one with a significant atmosphere. It does have an atmosphere. You can sort of get the impression of that here with just the haziness of it. And we can't see the surface. We can't see through the haze of the atmosphere, so we can't actually see down to the surface of Titan directly. We can do things like radar mapping. Okay, we can send radar waves through there to bounce off the surface and see it. And it's actually the only moon other than our own that we've actually landed on. Uh, Titan has actually, there was a space probe that is actually still out observing Saturn. The Cassini spacecraft is still orbiting around Saturn. But when it went out there, it took a small landing probe that, that landed on Titan and studied the surface of Titan for a day or so. So probe went down through the atmosphere, soft landed on the surface, and gave us our only images that we have directly, only visible images directly that we have of the surface. What did we find? Well, we found that there is, it has lakes, rivers on it, not of water. Temperature is a little bit colder than anything we ever experience here on Earth. You know, go down to Antarctica in winter and imagine like 100 degrees colder is about how cold it is. So extremely cold temperatures. It's not water. All water would be long since frozen solid. But uh, things like methane, things that are normally gases here, the temperatures are cold enough that they're actually liquids and that methane can actually rain out of the atmosphere. You can get rain and get a methane cycle like we have a water cycle here on Earth where material evaporates, forms clouds, rains out, and rivers and lakes and goes back and back and around. Well, Titan does the same thing with methane. So could life form not using water but instead using liquid methane as a base? Again, we don't know, but it's something that people, people astronomers try to think about and give us these four is probably the best bets within our solar system after the Earth, after Mars, as the best bets as potentially habitable uh, surfaces and, re and moons in the solar system. So, questions? 
interesting, leads right, leads right into our discussion today, which I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk about the solar system. So, No? 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 Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead and get started on the solar system then. Again, this is a set of, this is, the slides I've condensed here are a set of five chapters. So this is actually chapters four through eight. Recall that is one unit of the class. So chapter three has a certain weight, chapter two, chapters four through eight has the same weight as one of those chapters. So the information that I'm giving you here is what is most important. And as I said last time, don't spend your time reading in detail all five of those chapters. You're going to put a lot more work into, the, into it than you need to. Look at what I've talked about in the slides. You may want to skim through, skim through the text and look at the sections that I talk about a little bit more and look at those in a little more detail. But to get started here, let's look at what we, what we know of the solar system. What is here? What do we have in the solar system? Well, long ago, thousands of years, it was nice and simple. We had the sun. We had the moon. We see the stars. We had five planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And we knew about comets and meteors. That was about it. Everything else you hear about, you know, the four moons that we looked at first thing today, they were unknown. They knew only these, these few objects that existed. Stars, sun and the moon, five planets, comets, and meteors. Those are the only things that you can see with the naked eye. They had no idea of galaxies. Uh, star clusters, nebulae, some of the other pictures that we've looked at, they have no idea of any of, of any of those things. Why? Because they didn't have the technology yet. We didn't have telescopes to be able to see the different, to be able to see uh, many of the fainter objects. Now, that's expanded greatly. What do we know about now within our solar system? Well, now we've gone from one moon, ours, to, this is 166, that's probably a little outdated. We're pushing, probably pushing close to 200 now. 200 moons in the solar system. We just looked at four more first picture today. We switched from the sun. We had the sun. Now we know the sun is just a star. So there is one star in the solar system. We're up to eight planets. We added three from the five that we had. Right? We knew about Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. We discovered Uranus and Neptune. And we kind of added the Earth in there. Ancient astronomers would not have considered the Earth to be a planet. It was not like these other objects that moved through the sky. It was completely different. So early astronomers wouldn't have considered it a planet. So, but now we know eight planets. We've also added asteroids, which early astronomers did not know about. Even the brightest ones are too faint to be seen without a good a reasonable telescope. We still know about comets. Meteoroids would not have been detectable. Dwarf planets, things like Pluto and other objects, and Kuiper Belt objects. Kuiper Belt is actually a belt of material that is way out here beyond the orbit of Neptune. Pluto is a part of this belt of objects. One of the largest objects in that belt, but that's where Pluto falls. Uh, there's another belt further in between Mars and Jupiter. That's the asteroid belt. All the asteroids are located in this section in between the sort of shaded section in here. So lots of things that have been discovered over the last few hundred years really. I mean since the advent of the telescope we've been able to find out a lot more and been able to see a lot more and detect more objects like this. 
Alright, so let's see what we have here. Let's divide those planets. We've got, pl got eight planets here. We're going to divide them into groups. And there's two groupings of planets. They really are distinct, very distinct types. We call one set the terrestrial planets, meaning that they're Earth-like. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Those are much like the Earth in that we can land on them. And in fact, we have landed. We've, we've walked on Earth. We've landed spacecraft on Venus and Mars. Haven't landed anything on Mercury as of yet. But we could. If we wanted to land a spacecraft on Mercury, we could put a lander on Mercury. There is a solid surface there as we can walk around the Earth. You could, if you could travel there and have an appropriate spacesuit, you could walk around on any of those, any of those planets. Good reasons you might not want to on some of them. Mercury gets a little bit hot. Venus has uh, very high temperatures, extremely high temperatures. So you might not want to on some of them, but you could. They have a nice solid surface that you could walk on. By comparison, the Jovian planets do not. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, all much further away from the sun, none of those has a solid surface. We've visited each of them with spacecraft. We've never landed on any of them. The only landing in the outer solar system was the one I mentioned earlier today was the moon of Saturn, Titan, that we've actually landed on. We have sent probes into the atmosphere of, or a probe into the atmosphere of Jupiter to study it, but there's no surface up for which, on which it could land. It goes down, the atmosphere gets thicker and thicker and denser and denser until the probe simply gets crushed. So you can study them, but they're essentially big balls of gas and ices. No hard solid surface where you can actually land. Now the table from the text here is really a comparison and shows that they're all very distinct. All the terrestrial planets have these properties. All of the Jovian planets have these properties and they're completely opposite. Terrestrial planets are close to the sun, Jovian planets are far away. The orbits are very close together. All of these planets orbit very close together, close to the sun. These ones are really spread out. They're very small planets, both in terms of how big, physically big they are, their size, their diameter, and how much matter is contained there. So they're very small, whereas the Jovian planets are very large. Composition, these are rocky with a solid surface and a high density. So all kind of go together. Rocky surfaces, they've got a solid surface you could walk on, and they have a very high density. By comparison, Jovian planets, no solid surface. You're never going to walk on the surface of Jupiter. There is no surface that you could walk on. Very low density and primarily made of gases. Terrestrial planets rotate very slow. The Earth is the fastest one, rotating once a day. All of the Jovian planets rotate faster than the Earth. All of the other terrestrial planets rotate much slower than the Earth. Magnetic fields are relatively weak. Again, the Earth is the only one with a really strong magnetic field. And the Jovian planets, especially Jupiter, has a much stronger, much stronger magnetic field. Rings and moons, well, there are no rings among the terrestrial planets. Not one of them has a set of rings around it. There are three moons among the terrestrial planets. Right? We said 160-some at the beginning of this, last, rather than the last slide. Three of those are among the terrestrial planets. Our moon and Mars has two little tiny moons. That's it. The rest of those 160-some are all among those other four planets. So we don't see a lot of moons here. And in fact, Mercury and Venus have none. 
Only Earth and Mars have moons in the inner solar system. When we get to the outer solar system, you get systems of many dozens of moons around Jupiter and Saturn. And good numbers around Uranus and Neptune as well. So very distinct differences between each of these two sets of planets. Very, very distinct. We can see if you can locate exactly where it is, you know all the terrestrial planets have exactly the same properties. All of the Jovian planets do. I should have said rings. Mini rings. You all hear about the rings of Saturn, right? Everybody sees those. Actually, every single one of the Jovian planets has a ring system. So Jupiter has a ring, very faint, but it's there. Uh, Uranus has a reasonably nice but dark set of rings that were actually the second set discovered. And Neptune has a set of rings as well. So none of them are near as prominent as Saturn. Saturn's are the really beautiful, bright rings that we see. But each of the Jovian planets does have a ring system. So that's how we can break the planets up for comparison. And then we'll look at some of these in a little more detail here. But I'm going to go, sort of go through our inventory here. We're going to talk about some of the other objects before we come back and talk about the different planets. What we see here is a comet. Comets are a big ball of ice. Right? We looked at one on Monday, I believe, was our picture of the day, was the nucleus of a comet that we have a spacecraft that's flying or actually in orbit around. So a spacecraft is actually in orbit around the nucleus of one of these comets and taking images of it. Comets are primarily icy surfaces with some rock and dust and other materials thrown in. The, the nucleus itself is probably the size of a city. You know, my, a good sized city, miles across, you know, six, eight, ten miles across. So pretty good size or even a little bigger. So pretty good sized nucleus, but not big, you know, minuscule compared to any of the planets, any of the moons that we've looked at so far, incredibly tiny. What makes the comet so amazing is when they get close to the sun, that's a lot of ice. Ice, when you heat it up, well, here on Earth it melts. Out in space it doesn't melt. You don't, you don't go from ice being a solid to being a liquid. It goes from being a solid directly to being a gas. So you take this little tiny thing, only a few, maybe tens of kilometers across, and you evaporate a lot of that material off of its surface and it forms a tail, or a tail going back, a coma and a head around the comet. And we see, this is a sketch, here's an actual image, that things that might be tens of thousands of tens of thousands of kilometers across. Now all of a sudden it becomes nicely visible. You have all these ice particles there that are reflecting sunlight, allowing it to be visible. You have sun pushing back materials, leaving it behind, pushing back behind the comet in a tail. So when we look at a comet, what we see is this, but really what's happening and why we want to study that comet that we looked at earlier this week so closely is that nucleus is where everything comes from. When the comet is far away from the sun, when it's out in the depths of space, you know, way out in the outer solar system, it's just a big ball of ice floating around. It doesn't look like this. This only happens when it gets close to the sun. So when that comet gets close to the sun, then it starts to get heated up. Most of a comet's life is spent out in the depths of the solar system, way out by Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, way out there. And it doesn't look anything like this. In fact, it's essentially invisible to us. Uh, one of the best known comets is Halley's Comet. Comes around every 76 years or so. And 
will give us a nice apparition coming up again. What is it, another? It's about halfway through its orbit or so. Uh, 30 years, maybe not quite halfway through its orbit or so. Um, but when it comes back around again, another 40, year, 40, 40 some years, it'll give us another nice apparition, another chance to see the comet. Right now, if we want to look for it, it's invisible. It's still there. We can track exactly where it's going to be because we know its orbit. We followed it for many, many years. But in terms of trying to be able to see it, you're looking for something that's only tens of kilometers across, that's way across the solar system. It would be very, very hard to detect. When it comes in, that's when we get the beautiful sight of a nice comet here. Now let me do one more. There's the, here's, this explains the tails a little bit more of the comet. The tails are caused by the sun. The sun evaporates the material off, forms a big halo around the comet, and then the pressure of the sun, uh, we call the solar wind, pushing material away, will push that comet, push that material back away from the sun. So here as the comet comes in, this way you have a tail, tail, a tail. The tail always points directly away from the sun. So it's always going to be pointing directly away from the sun. As the comet comes in, that makes perfect sense to us. Right? The tail lags behind the comet. As it whips around here and leaves and heads back out into the outer solar system there, the tail actually goes first. The sun is still causing the tail, still pushing material away. So it's always going to still point away from the sun and that's where we see, so we see the tail then leading as it leaves, as the comet leaves the solar system. We get two types of tails. There is an ion tail. We see here, ion tail just means individual atoms that are removed from the surface. They get pushed straight back. They're very, very light. They're very easy to push straight back away from the sun. As it gets closer to the sun, it gets hot enough that you actually start to remove some bigger particles from the sun, little dust particles, you know, much like dust particles here on Earth. Those are a little bit heavier. And they're not as easy to push away. You see the tail isn't quite as distinct or long here. But they also lag behind. They're heavier particles, so they lag behind in the orbit. So the two tails together, looking at them, can tell you a couple of things. If we removed all of this, the sun, and just left one image of the comet here, you could tell where the sun is. Tail always points directly away, so this tail points away, so the sun has to be in that direction. And what direction the comet's moving. So the comet is moving in this direction because the dust tail is curved and lagging behind in its orbit. So just looking at the tails, if you happen to be able to see a comet, one of these years we'll get a nice comet visible in the northern hemisphere. We've been waiting for a little while now. But when we do, you'd be able to tell you know, exactly where the sun is. You'd be able to find where the sun is, in what direction, and you'd be able to tell what direction the comet is moving. You wouldn't be able to watch it when you see a comet in the sky. It just sits there. It's not that much different than looking at a planet or the moon. They don't move very quickly through the stars. You'd notice them moving from night to night relative to the stars, but you wouldn't be watching it streaming across the sky. Not like a meteor or a shooting star where you get that flash of light. It would essentially sit there. You'd see this comet with a nice tail just sitting in the sky. Come back tomorrow night, it's going to be close to the same spot. It's moving slowly, much like the planets do, much like the uh, planets, the moon, the sun actually move very slowly through the sky. So 
That's a little bit. I'm just going to, again, for this section, you're just getting a taste of everything. So I'm not going into great detail that I'd normally go through in the planetary class on all of these objects. Um, another, ob another thing that we see, uh, if you've ever seen a shooting star, a shooting star we also call a meteor. And meteor showers are associated with comets. We think about that. I've already told you that nucleus is materials being evaporated from it. And some of it's being left behind in a tail. But sometimes material, some of that material is then no longer attached to the comet. Some of it is left behind. Now all those little tiny particles continue to orbit around the sun just as the comet did. So they're still in the same orbit. So that when, we, when the Earth happens to pass through the orbit of the comet, we get, collect a lot of little comet pieces. Now those comet pieces are not big. They're things that are grains of dust, grains of sand, little tiny pieces that the comet actually collects. We, the Earth collects and very tiny, they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. They get, they're coming in at very high speeds and they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere and that's what you see is that shooting star. It's just a little tiny piece of, a grain of grain of sand, a piece of dust that is burning up way up in the Earth's upper atmosphere. And those are actually little pieces of comets. Now there are some bigger ones. There are some bigger pieces too that can actually make it down to the surface of the Earth. If you've ever seen a meteorite, uh, you can have larger pieces. But most of what you see, if you're sitting out there uh, looking up at the sky and you see a star going, a shooting star going across, you're really seeing a little tiny piece of a comet. And that's what's left over from a comet in its orbit or as a comet finally passes too close to the sun, it may actually break up completely and leave thicker regions as this, you know, the comet breaks up here. As that debris moves around, it just spreads out slowly and eventually it comes back around. The Earth will eventually pass through that. And all of the comets that we see, I mean all the, most of the meteor showers are associated with specific comets, either existing ones that have left material behind or comets that no longer exist that have completely broken up. Now, we have meteor crater is not related to a meteor. Uh, a meteor is just when we see that flash of light in the sky. This is actually meteor crater out in Arizona. So this is a crater here on the surface of the Earth. These are caused by much larger objects obviously, right? A little speck of dust isn't going to do this. This thing's about a, about a kilometer across. So half a little over, about a little over half a mile across. That takes a pretty big impact to be able to do that. These little tiny grains of sand and pieces of dust that I talked about aren't going to be able to do that. There are a lot of larger objects out there as well that are moving around much in the same orbits. And we'll talk about the asteroids, uh, that group between Mars and Jupiter that's out there. There are some asteroids that come very close to the Earth and can strike the Earth and cause an impact crater like this. We see lots of these on the moon. We don't see so many on the Earth mainly because the Earth has weather. Right? This is a relatively new one formed in the last I don't know, few thousand to ten thousand years. It's relatively new considering the Earth is four and a half billion years old. If we let this sit there, if this had formed, let's say it didn't form out in Arizona in the desert where the weather's a little milder, but it formed someplace where there's lots of rain and lots of wind, it's not going to last very long. It'll last, you know, long, it will last a while for our perspective, but even if you're knocking this down by, you know, a centimeter every year, 
wearing it down by wind and, ra- wind and rain. After thousands of years, you've worn down you know, a lot of material, wearing down kilometers worth of material over just a, f- a few, very short time, speaking geologically. Not speaking from our lifetimes. You know, if a big crater like this forms here in Pennsylvania tomorrow, it's not going to be gone in our lifetime. But over hundreds and thousands of years, it'll very quickly be worn down. So anything that formed here 10,000 years ago, the evidence of it's going to be wiped out. That doesn't happen on things like the moon. The moon has no rain. The moon has no wind. So a crater that formed there 3 billion years ago is still sitting there. We can still see it. and It looks like it just formed yesterday. But this is an example of one that we can see. Now this is about a kilometer across. That means in order to form this Meteor, we need, an, we need an object about one-tenth its size. An object will form a crater about ten times as big as the object itself is. So if this is a kilometer across, that means about a hundred meters across. That isn't all that big. hundred meters is a football field sized object, roughly. So you take a football field sized object and rock and smash it into the earth, and that's the kind of crater that you're going, you're going to get, something like that. And that's a very difficult object to detect. Something only 100 meters across is not something that we can see coming, usually. Uh, real big objects we could see, real faint, real faint little objects like this would be very difficult to know until it's much too, much too late. Let me see, did I give you those? Nope, I did not. Okay, I didn't know if I gave you the numbers on it. But uh, ten, num- ten, about 10 times the size. So if you have an object that's you know, a meter and acro- across, it might form a 10 meter crater. If you have something that's 100 meters across, you're going to form something a kilometer size, almost a mile size crater. If you had something a mile size, then you got a 10 mile size crater. So it goes up very quickly and those big ones are the ones we got to worry about. Those are the ones that really cause a lot of damage. Something like this, yeah, you wouldn't want to be there when it happened. Right? I mean, that's, damage does not just stop here. It's not, it's not going to be pleasant real close around that. But it won't cause any significant problems later on. Whereas a much larger crater, right, the one that happened 65 million years ago, uh, responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs, actually was a much, large, much, much larger than this and did throw up a lot more material, caused a lot more damage in the, in the impact. So little ones like this, not so bad unless you happen to be right there. Um, otherwise, the other one, the bigger ones are the ones that occur only on million year time scales. They don't occur very often, but when they do, they can cause some major changes. All right, let's look a little bit about how the solar system formed. You'll see this come back again. We'll talk about this again uh, in a couple chapters when we talk about how our galaxy formed. You'll see some very similar things to this, just on a much bigger scale. But what happens, our theory for how the solar system formed is through the contraction of a nebula. A cloud of gas and dust out in space contains all the mass that's going to be in the solar system and then some. And it starts to contract for some reason. For some reason it's sitting there nice and happily spinning very, very slowly. But something happens to get it to start to contract. What we believe right now happened is that a supernova went off nearby, you know, light years away, and the shock wave of that supernova compressed it and started this gas cloud collapsing to form our sun and our solar system. As it collapses and contracts, it was spinning very slowly. It's going to start speeding up. 
right? If you ever watched an ice skater spinning around, you've got their arms out, they start spinning, they pull their arms in, bring things closer to the center, it starts speeding up. It's what we call the conservation of angular momentum. If you, bring, if you have something spinning slowly and you bring everything in close to it, it's going to spin faster and faster and faster. Well, we're taking things that were probably a light year across or even more, and we're condensing most of that down to the size of the sun. So even if this spun only very, very slowly, it gets magnified when things move down. And now we get it to a sun that's spinning you know, once a month and planets that are whipping around the sun. So all that spin that existed in that cloud is still there and is sped up faster and faster. As we go on, we've co we condense it down. It, it starts out as a big cloud. It starts to collapse down to a disk. Most of the material goes to the center. So the vast majority of the material keeps going to the center, to the center, heating up, getting higher and higher temperatures, until eventually you start forming a star there. And again, we'll go through the whole theory of star formation in another couple of weeks. But the whole area down here just gets hotter and hotter until you form this gigantic ball here that will eventually collapse enough, heat up enough high enough temperatures to be able to fuse hydrogen into helium. That's our definition of a star. A star is an object that is able to fuse hydrogen into helium. As we do that, all the leftover material, the stuff that didn't condense down, starts to build up. And if you look at the image here, the sketches, you've got everything spread out pretty uniformly here. It's starting to clump together. And when you get to this one, after a few million years of this, you get some bigger clumps that have started to form. These are going to be the basics of the planets. These are going to be the planets that are going to begin to form. What's going to form close to the sun is going to be rocky material, metallic material. Right? Close to the sun, it's very hot. You're not going to be able to form ices. Right? Ices try to form real close like mercury. They're going to evaporate again right away. But it's, cool, but it's cool enough that things like rocks and metals can condense and stick together and form the basis of the inner planets, the terrestrial planets. Right? Among the terrestrial planets, there's lots of rock, lots of metal, and tiny bits of water and ice, although it may not seem like it on Earth. Right? We're covered with three quarters of us. Our surface is covered with water. That's just the surface. If you actually think of how much water there is on the Earth, you know, it's this little paper-thin layer with big, big ball of rock below it. The oceans go down miles, but not thousands of miles that the rest of the Earth's Earth does. So the Earth is pretty much all rock and metal. Little bit of water just happens to be up on the surface where we are. But that's the type of material that would condense in here. Rocky materials inside, uh, icy materials further out, and that would form rockier planets close to the sun and icier planets closer out. And again, after a few million years, they're slowly collecting more and more through collisions. They stick together, add more, get more massive, get more gravity. They're able to clear up more of these particles. And you see over time, you get from lots and lots of little tiny particles to just a few big ones to eventually just the planets that we know today. So time frame. Again, I know people always like it when I say, you know, it only took 100 million years. It was a short time frame. Out of four and a half billion years, that's just the first, you know, little tiny bit of its life while the sun and the solar system were forming. You know, the solar system started forming about four and a half billion years ago. 
first hundred million of that you know, is not all that much. Just a very small portion of it. All right, here's an example of where we see this. This is the star uh, Beta Pictoris. And this is actually one that is observed to have perhaps planetary formation going on right now. So this is the, the dark band is where the star is blocked out. And this is zoomed in a little bit more. This is looking at just this section here. This zooms in. This is actually infrared and visible imaging that shows the dust around the star. This would be an artist's conception of what you might see. That's not actually an image. But this would actually be a real picture of what we're seeing around the star. We can block out the light from the star because it would be overwhelming. But we can see all of this dust around it, which could be in the process of going through, going through that process that I just explained. It could be in the process of forming planets around this star. So we do see some warm material there. Again, that's well out beyond. We can't really look down too close just because the star is so bright. Can we actually see the planets forming? No. Remember the time scales? It still took, even though I, I say it's fast, but fast to uh, a solar system is still slow for us if it takes it a million years. You know, it might be going on. Come back in a few hundred thousand or a million years and we might be able to detect planets around this star but nothing that we're going to be able to see within our lifetimes. But we do see evidence, you know, that from what I've just explained to you, we do see some evidence of that around. Now, this is sort of the temperatures that I was talking about before and where different things form. The temperature, this little graph shows how the temperature decreases as you go further out in the solar system. If you get real close to the sun, that temperature spikes up and goes up towards the temperature at the surface of the sun, which is about 6,000 degrees. As you get further away, that drops off really quickly. There's the Earth at this temperature. Jupiter would be out about here. Saturn, Uranus, Neptune would be even further out here. The objects mentioned are what would be able to condense, what would be able to form a solid chunk at those temperatures. If your temperature is 2,000 degrees, you're not expecting a lot of water ice to form. You might have water vapor there, you might have water molecules, but they're not going to be able to form into ice. If you get much further away, if you get out to the distance of Jupiter, it's a lot cooler and you get down to the point where water ice can start to form. Further out you might get things like ammonia freezing. Further in, earlier you can actually get rocks start to form. Right? Rocks will stand up to a higher temperature than an ice will. Metals can stand up to an even higher temperature. They can condense out even quicker. So when we look at the planets, we would then expect to see the innermost planets have lots of metals. As you get further and further out, you should see more and more rocks come in. And as you get out to the very outermost planets, you should start to see lots of ices and gases. And that's what we see. Mercury is almost all metal. It's got a coating of rock on the outside, you know, many kilometers thick, but the base material of it is all almost iron and nickel in its core. That's all that could condense out this close to the sun. It couldn't get a lot of rock and it certainly couldn't get much in the way of ices. When we get out to the Earth, we're starting to get more rocks, lots of metal. Earth has a gigantic metallic core. Again, we're sort of biased by our view of the surface of the Earth. We're used to, oh, what's the Earth made up of? Well, it's rock and water. 
because that's all we see on the surface. That's only a tiny little bit of the Earth. There's a lot more deep down there that we are not capable of exploring right now. You know, we can drill down miles, but you've got to grow down many thousands of miles down to the center of the Earth. Uh, as you get further out towards Jupiter and Saturn, then you start to form ices and you start to get a lot more material. So it also explains why you get bigger planets perhaps as you get further out. Here you could only form things from metals. Now you're starting to be able to add in rocks. You're going to get it's a little bit bigger planets. As you start to get further out and you can add things like ices and then gases, you're able to get much larger planets and we get the much larger planets, Jupiter through Neptune, as compared to the innermost planets. But those temperatures really tell us where the rocky planets are going to form and where the giant planets are going to form. So we expect rocky planets to form close to the sun and giant planets to form much further away. Beyond the solar system, where else do we see planets? Uh, we're up to, what is it, pushing 1,800 planets that have now been detected. So 25 years ago, it was like a handful, a couple. Now we're up to almost 2,000 planets that have been detected outside of the solar system. Uh, a couple different ways they're detected. One is example is what's shown here. And that is through uh, the wobble that they create in their star's orbit. As the planet moves around the star, sometimes it's closer to us and it pulls the star a little bit towards us. Sometimes it's on the other side and it pulls it a little bit away. Remember the Doppler effect? Right? If something's moving away from us, it's going to be shifted a little bit. We're going to measure a little bit of a velocity away. If it's being pulled towards us, we're going to see a little bit of a blue shift. So we'd see a shift in the lines that we could then determine a velocity and we could map out where this planet is. So we could actually see it pull, tugging the star. We can't see the planet directly. It's much too faint and too close to the others to the star to be visible. But we can see its effect on the star. Now that's a simple version. It can get more complicated. Here's an example of another star. And not near as simple as this where you can see a nice simple little curve here. This one kind of goes up and down and there and there and there. This could be due to multiple planets, and in this case, uh, three. This is sort of a sketch of what we'd expect to see for this solar system. By Astronomers can take this observation and work backwards to figure out where do the planets have to be, how big do they have to be, and where do they have to be orbiting to cause what we're seeing in the light of this star. So in other words, for this one, you need one planet, smaller planet, incredibly close to the star, much closer than Mercury is to our own sun. You need something else out here at about, what, the orbit of Venus or so, Mercury to Venus. And you need another bigger, even bigger one out beyond, slightly beyond the orbit of Mars. Fit the masses, fit the sizes of the orbits and how fast they're orbiting. And we can try to reproduce as close as we can the light that we actually observe. So that's one of the ways we're actually able to detect planets outside the solar system. We can't see them. There are very rare cases where you could actually, you'd need very special conditions to be able to actually see an image of a planet outside of the solar system. But we can detect them and we've now detected, you know, well over a thousand. I thought it was pushing up to about 1800 right now, last time I looked. All right, as I said, we're going to dip through chapters. I just have these all put together. Um, what time is it? We've got a couple minutes. I'm going to go ahead and get started on the Earth and the Moon and then we'll pick back up here. 
a uh, little more. This chapter, I kind of skimmed through this. I cut the most out of this chapter, so I'm just going to go through a few things on the Earth and Moon section um, here. One couple things I want to talk about. One is tides, mainly because it's something that people, you know, if you've ever been near the ocean, you know, gone to the ocean, you've probably heard something or seen something of it. That the tide will come in, the tide will go out, and you can watch that if you're there on the beach, you know, set your stuff up and not pay any attention and be out swimming for a couple hours and come back and your stuff is washed away because the tide came in. Or set it up close to the beach and find out now, you know, you're a couple, you're 100 feet from the beach because the tide went out and now you're way back, way out away. That is due to the moon primarily is what causes the tides, but it's also the sun. And what happens is the moon pulls on the earth. Right? It's got a gravitational force. It pulls on the earth and the earth pulls on it, but we're looking at the moon pulling on the earth. The difference is the moon and the earth are so close together that you can calculate the gravitational force between the earth and the moon. Usually you go center to center. But there's also a gravitational force between the moon and the near side of the earth a little bit closer to the moon, and the moon and the far side of the earth, a little bit further away. And that means that there's a stronger force on the near side of the earth than there is on the far side. And that is going to pull the water away. Not a lot. It's not going to pull the water floating up into space or anything, but it's enough to pull water towards that section of, towards that part of the earth. So you're going to get a high tide here, you're also going to get a high tide on the other side, on the other side of the earth. How do you get that? The moon's pulling here. How are we getting high tide over here? Well, one way to think about it is the water can flow here. You're pulling the water away. And here the water's kind of getting pushed away. Or think about it, the earth's getting pulled a little bit away from the water. So the earth gets pulled a little bit in this direction, leaving a bulge on this side and a bulge on this side. And that's why you'll get a high tide here. And if you get a high tide now, about 12 hours later, you get another high tide as the Earth rotates around. And you get two low tides in between. But it's the water being pulled by the moon that is causing the tides. So if there were no moon, would we still have tides? Yeah, you'd have less tides. You'd actually see some tides due to the sun. And the sun does call, cause tides, but at about one third or so the rate. So not near as strong as the lunar tides. So most of the, fa most of the tides that we see occur are due to the moon. It's also, they also, the tides also do something else. They're also slowing the Earth down. Earth is rotating a little bit slower now than it was, you know, last week, last year, 10 years ago, 100 years ago, not a lot not slowing down by you know seconds or minutes a year that we're ever going to notice it but it is slowing the earth down why is it doing that well the earth is rotating pretty quickly once a day pretty fast the moon moves around much slower taking a month to go around so that means that as the moon pulls this tidal bulge pulls the water away from the earth the earth rotates that water away a little bit and there's a force pulling backwards so the Earth is trying to rotate this way. There's a gravitational force between the moon and this extra bulge that tends to pull it backwards and slows down the Earth. Every once in a while, you might hear on June 30th or December 31st that they add a leap second. You put an extra second in to synchronize the time with the Earth slowing down. 
So every once in a while you'll hear, it's not every year, it's not, it's not a very consistent because there are so many variables going on here that it doesn't happen you know, every third, not like the leap year where we can plan it well in advance. Uh, but every once in a while, time is it's slowed down just enough that we have to add a leap second in, you know, every every couple years or once or once a year or so, roughly. You have to add that extra little second in just to keep all the clocks in balance with with the Earth. So you'll see that that's going to continue forever till the Earth and the Moon are gone. Eventually, if the Earth would last long enough, which it won't probably, I don't, it won't slow down quick enough that long before that the sun will have uh, pretty much vaporized anything in the inner solar system. But if you let this go long enough, eventually we would sl- it would slow down the Earth's orbit enough that one side of the Earth would always face the moon. Right? One side of the moon always faces the Earth right now. So if you lived on the moon and you lived on the near side, you'd always see the Earth. It would never rise or it would never rise or set. It would just be sitting there hanging in the sky. So if you go to the near side of the moon, you always see the earth. If you go to the far side, you'd never see the earth. It wouldn't exist. You would never be able to see. It would never come up above your horizon. You'd never see anything. Eventually, what would happen is that you'd slow down the earth to that same amount so that the earth rotates at exactly the same speed with which the moon is orbiting around it, meaning that if you're in the right spot on the earth, you'd be able to see the moon all the time. If you're in the wrong spot, you'd never see the moon at all. It wouldn't exist. It would still exist, it would be there, but you would not be able to see it. So if it happened in this configuration, if this were, were happened to stop many billions of years from now, you know, North America here would not be able to see the moon. But Europe, Asia, and Africa would be able to see the moon all the time. It would never appear to rise or set. It's going to, it would eventually slow down the Earth to that amount. Again, not something we're going to be looking for this semester or even a hundred or a thousand years from now. This would, not even, this would take long enough that it would take many billions of years. And long before that, the sun will expand and pretty much vaporize everything. But that's what, that's what carrying it out, that's what eventually would occur. All right, let's stop there. I'll talk about the moon next time since we've got, we've got a lab to do. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there and I'll pick up on Monday and we'll talk about the moon. We'll probably get through the moon, Mercury, and on to Venus. Because I, did, I didn't have a whole lot to do on the, I wasn't going to do a whole lot on the Earth for this class. Any questions? No, no, no.